and welcome to this week's episode of Renoites. My name is Connor McQuibby. I am your host. Renoites is the weekly interview podcast where I talk to folks from northern Nevada, a wide variety of guests. The goal is that this show has a little bit of something for everyone. So some news and politics, some businesses, some nonprofits, arts and culture, a little bit of everything. I hope you enjoy some of the episodes that you found so far, and I'm very excited about this one. My guest on the podcast today is our current police chief, Catherine Nance. She has been the chief of the Reno Police Department since February of this year. She's been in the role for about six months or so, and I got the opportunity to sit down with her and talk about how things are going at RPD. We talked about what it was like coming from the city of Stockton to Reno to be police chief, about her priorities here, what she's learned in her first six months or so on the job, some of the changes that she's made, the areas that she thinks need the most focus, and also some broader issues about policing, how we can establish better trust with the police, how community policing works and the intentions behind it. We talked about body cameras and transparency, a lot of really good topics covered in this episode. It is a little longer than a normal episode because we had so much to talk about, and I really appreciate the chief taking the time to sit down and have a conversation for this show. Before we get to the episode, just a quick note on the financial sustainability of the Renoites podcast. This is a listener-supported, community-funded type of project. I am specifically trying to avoid having annoying podcast ads for a couple reasons. First of all, they're annoying, and I don't want to bother you with ads. But also, I want the show to remain independent. I don't want to have to worry about advertisers and what they think. I want to be able to have whatever guests I want on the show. And the only way that works is with financial support from listeners. I'd also like to just prove that it is possible for local media to be financially viable without an ad-based model. We'll see if that works or not. One way that you can help prove that it is possible is by signing up on Patreon. Patreon is a site that allows people to support creators like myself, podcasts, artists, musicians. So please visit patreon.com slash renoites to learn a little bit more. I have several different levels on Patreon from as little as $3 a month. That one I consider kind of a tip jar. If you would pay a dollar for this episode, which I think is well worth a dollar, consider signing up on Patreon to just make that an automatic contribution to the show. This season has been fantastic. I've had some really great guests and some really excellent episodes coming up too. If you have suggestions for future guests or any kind of feedback, please feel free to send me an email. My address is Connor, C-O-N-O-R, at renoites.com. And now this week's guest, Reno Police Chief, Catherine Nance. Chief Catherine Nance of the Reno Police Department, welcome to Renoites. Thanks for coming on the show. Thank you for having me. This is great. Yeah, excited to talk to you. So you have been, you're our new police chief just fairly recently this year. You've been in this office since February after a selection process to replace our former police chief who retired. So can you just start by telling me about your history with Reno? So you live here, you work here now. What brought you to apply for this position? Kind of what's your connection with this city, both before you became police chief and and currently? Yeah, so I was in Stockton for 26 years. I did a police career there, had an amazing time, got hired in 1996. I was just 21 years old and you know didn't know what I was doing, but I had a great time doing it. Eventually, I was kind of coming to the end of my career there. I'd maxed out almost on time. I was getting to be where I was of a couple years from retirement age. And so I started thinking about 
what is my future going to look like? Where, mm-hmm. you know, I always joke around and say, what do I want to be when I grow up? Where do I want to end up? <laughs> Still don't feel like I'm old enough to be, you know, do at this point in my career. It's kind of an odd feeling. Mm-hmm. So I started thinking about it and realized that at some point in time, I was going to want another career after mine ended. And I thought the best time to start looking was then there was a lot of things happening that just made it the right time for me. Funny story, I happened to be visiting my niece who goes to the university, and it was right about the same time that they announced that this position was going to be open. And I called my husband. I said, hey, what do you think about moving to Reno? And he goes, "Uh, yeah, let's move. Uh, Are you going to get a job or something? And I was like, yep, I'm going to apply and see what happens. And then it just kind of evolved into it. Thought about it, really looked at the department and the community. And I wasn't looking to make a quick move. I was only going to make a move that I thought I would fit in at. And it was more for me about the long-term goal of wanting something different Mm -hmm. and continuing that career. And then it just worked out. So that's how I kind of ended up here, which is a very odd, long version of a story, Mm -hmm. but it seems like it's uh, somewhat symbolic of my whole life. If I don't have a plan, things kind of just lead me down a path and I end up there. And so that's kind of what this is like also. I mean, I think that there is some benefit in being able to take advantage of opportunities when they come along and kind of follow where life leads you sometimes. What was the selection process like? Do you know what they were looking for particularly in a police chief or what was the conversation with the people that were making that decision along the way? They did a really good recruitment of the job. So they had a very interesting brochure. They had a lot of stuff about the city and about the police department and then about what they were really looking for. And then they provided some data and feedback on surveys that they had done internally, surveys that they had done at the community. So it gave me a very broad look of what they were looking for. I think that they were looking for somebody that was a little bit innovative. They were focused on an outside candidate. That was kind of one of the focuses Mm -hmm. that was really prevalent in what they were looking at. And then they were looking for somebody that had some law enforcement experience and can bring some differences and ideas into the community. And then they were really looking for kind of a team player with the whole city. So somebody Mm -hmm. that had experience in not just working in a police department, but how do you integrate a police department into all city departments? And it was funny because it was one of the things that actually drew me to this department is the way that they were working on things like homelessness and doing this combined approach to how we were combating different problems in the community. It needed fine tuning and we've been working Mm -hmm. on making it even better, but it was something that the city was committed to. So it allowed the department room to grow in that space also. As far as how the selection process was, it was a great selection process. It was very well done. A lot of interviews. It went on for a long time. I would not say it was stressful, but I would say it was very thorough. Mm. After every part of it, I would leave thinking, well, I either have a job or I don't. We'll see what happens. And it's kind of the sign of a good selection process. You never really felt discounted, but you never really felt like it was actually yours. Mm. And so you just kind of always kept working and striving and figuring it out. And then for me, it was about if I'm the right fit for the city and the police department, then I want the job. And if I'm not, I don't want the job. So Mm. that was kind of how I was really going into this is if you truly think that I'm the person that you want to put in this position, then I want it. But if I'm not, then at any point in time, I was willing to move on past it. Right. You mentioned that you got into policing at a young age and it was it sounded like just kind of a a career opportunity, the stability and a, a good job. Is there anything else that drew you to law enforcement in particular as a career or as you've been, you know, a police officer for a very long time? What's kind of kept you in this line of work? Yeah, so I did fall into it. I had two young children. I was a waitressing at Chili's at the time. 
And my mom was adamant that I needed a job with benefits and health insurance and retirement. And she was kind of, I think, probably tired of me playing in the restaurant industry and <laughs> thought it was time for something different. And so I applied. And this was, you know, at a time when you didn't look online. There was no online or internet to look at. You went down and you looked at a board at the city and it said all the things you could apply for and what you could be qualified for. And of the things I was qualified for at that point in time, the highest paying one was being a police officer. Mm. And I thought, well, let me try it. I knew some people that had done it. I knew people that were in the process and academies. And I thought, well, if they can do it, I can do it. I think I can handle that. So I applied. And you know, from then on, I didn't know what I was getting into. I didn't know anybody in law enforcement. I had no idea what was the positive or the negatives. Mm. And it just happened. And then from there, my career just kind of evolved. And I loved it. It was great. It was so much fun. It was very independent. You have the opportunity to kind of do what you need to do. You, yes, we're call driven and we have things, but it's, it's independent work. Mm. And then there was a lot of opportunities for growth and things to do and move. And, and then I really discovered that people relied on us and needed help. And that was very fulfilling. So it just throughout my career, different opportunities have popped up that I've just really enjoyed. Yeah. So this is your first time as a police chief. You've risen through the ranks over a long career. Uh, so what does that look like now in kind of the day-to-day -day is your job? How much of your job <laughs> is this big picture thinking about how law enforcement should work? How much of it is like shorter-term operational stuff of how do you keep staffed? Kind of what does your, your current job look like now compared to everything you've done in your career? Every day is completely different. And every day I have no idea what I'm going to do that day. <laughs> um, and I have a very packed calendar. Uh, I, I've never seen, um, throughout my career, I've never seen a calendar that I'm like, whoa, this is a little overwhelming. And mine's a little overwhelming at times. Mm -hmm. It's all of that. It's it's long-term goals. And then looking at how do you achieve long-term goals? And how do you make those long-term goals sustainable? And then realizing that I, I'm still learning and growing, uh, not only in the department, but in law enforcement and as a person and as a leader. And then it's very short term things. It's, you know, there's an incident here that's happening and me looking at it and looking at our resources and what our response to the community is going to be. How was that incident handled by my officers? Were our policies matching our procedures when we were out there? And then if they weren't, how can we fix that? And then where are our gaps and where are our holes? So every critical incident that happens, every major catastrophe that, that occurs, and then just day-to-day -day things, even calls or complaints that, you know, community members have about interactions they had with the police, I have to look at it in both the instant and the small term and then in the long term in the mm. bigger picture. So I spend my time vacillating between the two and almost has to be almost seamlessly. And then identifying long-term problems and goals that I might have and figuring out how to implement those in a manner that's going to be controlled enough that people are ready for it. Because mm. you can only make so many changes before people don't really like that, either <laughs> in the community or the city or internally in the department, all of those things. How do you make it happen in a controlled rollout that allows that support still to be there without overwhelming the process of change? Yeah, I know a lot of the conversations you were having when you first stepped into the role of reporters, people were asking, what are you going to do? What are you going to do? And I know a common answer you said is, I am going to figure out what's going on yes. first. I'm not just going to roll in and say, oh, well, this worked in Stockton, so I'm going to do this here. Yeah. Uh, so that's good to hear that the... the the controlled, thoughtful approach to making changes is an important one. It is. Uh, yeah. Sometimes, though, honestly, sometimes, and it's happened a couple times where I've been like, oh, nope, don't like that. We're changing that today. Mm. Because it's things that need to be changed right then. And so there has been times where I've had to be like, no, we're going to make this right happen right now. 
And I have to not discount what those ramifications can be, but it's that balancing mm -hmm. of act of when, how long can I allow something to happen as opposed to making a change right away? And so there has been times when it's just been an instant change too. So yeah. it's, my brain constantly turns and I write everything down because otherwise right. I forget. So I have like notes of what I'm going to do and like I have to keep it all in perspective mm -hmm. somewhere. Yeah. What are some of the urgent ones that you've had to deal with that couldn't wait for like a slow change since you've been here in Reno? Yeah. Some of the things I really realized that we needed to improve on were some of the recruiting techniques and things like that. It was a priority. It was here. We were working on it. But when you want to prioritize something, you have to really put the resources in and direct everybody to know that this is a priority. So that was one of the ones that we very early on changed how that program was running. And not that anybody was doing anything wrong or not doing it well, but we needed to support that program in a totality. So the whole department needed to support that recruiting effort. And we needed to lump it into a place where we had command staff support, we had lieutenants and commanders that were watching it on a daily basis, getting constant updates to really just prioritize it to the level it needed to be prioritized. So that's w one of the ways sometimes changes are. Mm -hmm. Really quickly, one of my early ones here was a uniform change. There was some requests to have different types of uniforms, so we did that. So some of your listeners might see officers wearing different uniforms than they saw them mm -hmm. wear before. So one, to create consistency in what they were wearing, but then also to give them a more modern look mm -hmm. and to allow for... Uh, we were wearing a lot of wool class A uniforms that are hard to repair, hard to keep clean. Do a lot. So these are, these are a little bit more manageable in mm. that day to day. So that was a fun change. We've made some changes to the grooming policy. So some of our officers have beards now, different uh. colored hair. Like there's some stuff that's kind of fun and uh, just really trying to make sure that our department is matches what the community needs. And then our recruiting efforts match what our community looks like. So mm -hmm. we can have that diversified police force. Yeah, I was gonna say as part of the change in uniforms and grooming standards and those kind of things to help officers be more integrated with their community or feel like when people encounter officers that it's not, oh, that is a completely different category than me, but like, yeah. oh, hey, there are similarities. Like we are, you know, all citizens here in Reno and we have those kind of commonalities. Is that part of it is that the police shouldn't feel so separate from everyone else? It is. And it's it's kind of a double-edged sword with it, though. You have to watch because you want a, a department that looks professional, that mm -hmm. has a professional um, appearance, that has a uniformity. It is a paramilitary organization. So we do have things that we do that um, resemble how the military looks. But we also want community members to be able to feel like, hey, I can talk to this person. Mm. If I have a beard and tattoos or I've got some different little colors in my hair, it's fine. We have women police officers that, you know, what color can they paint their nails? And, and I always say, I honestly don't care what color nail polish you wear, whether you have a beard or not. As long as you go out there, work hard and mm. get the job done, that's the only thing I care about, right? That's it. And so if those little things can increase morale in some ways, or if they can make somebody who maybe was on the fence with applying for us because they don't want to look like maybe some of the police officers they've seen in the past, mm. I want to open those doors and have those conversations. And honestly, I think we've come so far in society that what somebody looks like doesn't dictate who they are as a person mm -hmm. in our in our minds. And so the idea before that all people who have tattoos are criminals, that's long since forgotten. <laughs> right. let, let that go. Let's just say that that let's just be appropriate and professional mm. in our job and in, in our both in our attire, our appearance, and then the way that we deal with the public. Yeah. So you are our first female police chief here yes, in Reno, uh, and policing is a very male-dominated field in general, historically. What kind of unique expectations or pressures do you think that that's brought to your work 
either as chief or previously in yeah. Stockton, do you feel pressure sometimes to be tougher to sh- prove that, you know, um, that it's not a difference because you're a female police officer? What kind of pressures or expectations do you think you get that are different than than male officers? It's funny because I, I didn't recognize it for a long time in my career. I never even really knew when I entered law enforcement that there was um, I guess somewhere in the back of my head, I knew that most police officers were men, but it never really, I never thought about it, if that mm. makes sense. Like I just did my job, never really thought about it. And then I also never really thought about how as a group, there might be commonalities in ways that we feel pressure different than some of the male counterparts. Mm-hmm. But I think it's mostly important to realize that everybody in the policing, everybody in any career always has challenges. So what do your challenges look like? Yeah, some of my challenges have been because of gender. It happens, but other people have challenges that aren't based on gender, but Mm. they still have things that they have to deal with. So we all just have to, I think, be very honest about what those are. I think the most common ways that women police officers feel pressure is that there is a need to overcome any preconceived ideas or potential biases that people either in the community or maybe their male counterparts have. Mm -hmm. And even if it's not sad or it's not an explicit bias or it's not something that's there in the back of your mind a lot of times you feel the need to maybe react to situations different or to be different not to ever meet up with the stereotype that somebody might have of you and i think that's common no matter what you're dealing with Mm -hmm. so i think that that a lot of that pressure is self-induced and a lot of it is in our own way that we handle stressors and then i think as you know you move through your career and you promote uh, is most other any career, you start to become very cognizant of the public eye on you and how what mistakes can look like and then the weight of some decisions that get placed on your shoulders. And mm-hmm. those things just sometimes can exemplify if you allow them to. And you just have to keep it all in perspective and realize that we're more likely alike than we are different. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You mentioned that, like I said earlier, you were going to learn what's going on in the area before you set out to make a lot of big changes. So you've been in this position about six months or so now. Uh, I guess it's time to ask, what have you learned from the last six months? What have you seen as the priorities? How is that kind of aligned with what you expected when you were stepping into the role? Kind of what's the the takeaway from the first six months or so? Yeah, so I think um, overall, my my first takeaway I'm going to say is that I love this community. It is a great community. They've been very welcoming and supportive. They're very supportive of the police. There are a lot of community members that are willing to be involved and to get involved in, and give their opinions, positive or negative. I love the conversations that have that hard conversation aspect to it. I like it when our community members ask me about incidents that have happened or about their views on police or even maybe things that are happening nationwide, even if they're not happening here, to give me a chance to talk about the great things that we do and how we can combat some of that stuff that that can go wrong. Mm. Um I think the other part of this is that they're it's an amazing department. They're very resilient. They work very, very hard. We've you know gone through some staffing challenges and there's been a flux on how what the recommended staffing level is or what our allocated staffing numbers are, and it's lower than it has been in the past. But they're continuously working on how to adapt that and how to overcome and how to be the best police department that they can be. They're hardworking and it's good. Mm-hmm. And I like to see their interactions with the community overall. They're very, very good. So that's the, that's what I learned that made me very confident and comfortable in being here. Um, some of the challenges were that we didn't have, we don't have, we're working on um, a clear policing model. What are the ultimate goals of the police department? What are the challenges and how do we 
how do we actually have a policing model that works based on past practices, based on best practices in different policing organizations, based on the needs of the community and the data? And so for me, it's about pulling all of those things together and looking at what we actually have and what we need to make a difference on. We're in the process of rolling out a deployment strategy that's about directed engagement and enforcement. And it's uh, location-based based on either crime trends, needs of the community, or things that we're seeing. And so that rolls out this week. I'm really excited to start that process. And it allows every member of the organization to be a part of making a certain community or location better. Mm. And so we're starting to roll out things like that. So that's a lot of fun. We've also done a lot of work on policies to make sure that our policies match our practice and making sure that they're up to date, they're current, and they're reflective of the needs of the organization. So there's been a lot Mm -hmm. of policy changes, which internally allows officers um, and our professional staff to say, hey, I now have a clear defined expectation of what I'm doing. Right. one of the things that we're rolling out soon is uh, procedural justice and implicit bias training, really learning how our interactions internally with one another and with the community can create legitimacy of our department and to make sure that as leaders in the organization, we're creating followers and people that want to do the things that we want to do and aren't afraid to step up when something goes wrong. Mm. So we're really working on those types of things that there were some gaps that we've had before. So it's fun to be able to bring some ideas in and create some change internally. Yeah. And you've worked on implicit bias stuff before, right? Can you talk a little bit more about what implicit bias is and kind of what it looked like in that regard here in Reno as you stepped in and kind of what changes you are specifically kind of looking at doing or are making? Yeah, absolutely. So implicit bias, and it's really important to talk about what implicit bias is and what it isn't. Mm-hmm. What it is not is a prejudice. It's not a prejudice or a discrimination. And it's not even something that generally people do consciously. They don't even know it's happening to them. And I, the best scenario, the explanation for it that I can tell is like people in our community have feelings and thoughts about the police regardless if they're positive or negative, it doesn't matter. And when they see a police officer driving down the road, they're going to have a thought. And some people's thoughts are that they're, oh, good, there's the police, we're going to be safer. And some people's thoughts are, oh, no, there's the police, what's going to happen? And whatever that is, that that immediate response that you have when you see someone or something, you can't even really control that because that's part of your upbringing. It goes to your prior experiences. It goes to the things that you've done throughout your life that makes you think something is happening. Mm -hmm. And so when you talk about implicit biases, there are things that dictate your reaction before you even know you're having a reaction. Your brain has the reaction before your body can even do anything. And you can't change that. But what's important to acknowledge is that everybody has them and that we all have biases ourselves and that the community also has biases. So how do we talk about them in a manner that's going to make us slow our brain down and think before we respond? Mm. For the officers and looking at circumstances, there's been many different scenarios where officers have a perception or a thought in their head about what it's going to look like in a community right then, who's driving violence in a community, what's happening there. It leaves them almost vulnerable because they focus on what they think that they're seeing or think that they know, Mm -hmm. but they might miss triggers and clues that are outside their normal. Right. And we see that a lot of times, oddly enough, with female suspects and female perpetrators of crime because they are a lower driver of violence usually. There's been times where officers have missed cues where women were actually a threat, but they don't always see it because normally in their brain, men drive violence. I mean, Mm. men are, uh, if you look at, 
statistics and data on suspects and people that are arrested, men are generally arrested more than women. And so it's looking just to make sure that everybody aware is, is aware of what's happening. It's yeah. happening going on in their own brains. Gotcha. What have you done? Is there trainings or how do you kind of address that here at RPD? Yep. We started training. So we, uh, um, we're rolling out that program with the training. With We train the trainers. So we have internal uh, in-house trainers that are being trained by professionals outside. And then we're going to start doing just classes and seminars. And one of the things that I'm really excited about is we have a Chiefs Impact Panel that we developed. It's 20 members of our community. It's a diverse group that comes together, and they're going to receive the same training. So hmm. we're going to put them in the same space as our officers and be able to say, this is how we're training the officers, but what is the actual takeaway between community and the officers to, to increase and add on to that conversation with us? Oh, that's right. I probably have some more questions about kind of integrating with the community and kind of bridging that separation between yeah. like police and community. But, uh, but first, so you came from Stockton. I kind of yes. want to talk to you about the differences because Stockton is it's a little bigger population wise, but it is smaller land area wise. So it's a little more dense. It has different demographics. Uh, it's a different city. So what's it been like coming to Reno from Stockton? Kind of what have you brought from your experience mm -hmm. in a different type of urban environment uh, with, you know, a different constituency to come to Reno? It's, you know, there's similarities and there's differences. What have you kind of seen along those lines is the things that you brought with you from your experience and the things that are that are new to you here that you didn't experience in Stockton. What's that that contrast? You know, it's um, it's funny because it's the cities are more similar than they are dissimilar in a way. So for me, I feel comfort here because I feel like it's similar enough that I don't feel like it's so different. Mm. If that makes sense, like I don't feel uncomfortable here. I think sometimes you go places and it's so different than where you're used to being. You feel like you're on vacation or on yeah. a little on edge because right. you don't really know. But this is similar enough that I have kind of the same comfort level. It's mm -hmm. um, generationally people live here. They've gone to high school together. They know each other in different ways. So-and-so's married to so-and-so's cousin and yeah. this and that. All that, that's the normal for me. So mm -hmm. that, that kind of small town vibe yeah. I'm very used to. So I like that. It is a very violent city. Stockton has a history of violence and a long-term gang problem, generational gang issues that have arisen to the forefront of driving a lot of the violence. Mm -hmm. So for me, the things that I learned there that I can take away and bring over are how to work on and combat crimes in that type of situation. Mm -hmm. And how do you identify the people in the places that are driving the violence and do very selected enforcement on them. So it's not a blanketed enforcement or a zero tolerance enforcement. And then the trust building with the community, a lot of work was done on that there. Mm. So I have the opportunity to draw from those experiences and bring them in here, knowing that the community is very different and the expectations are very different yeah. and the crimes are um, a lot lower and a lot, it's a lot <laughs> different in the way that you look at that. Yeah. So the violent crime is not the same. And so for me, that is a great thing because it allows us to focus on more types of crimes so you're not i don't just have to focus on violent crimes i can we can look at property crimes blight related crimes nuisance crimes and look at it more of a total approach of the city and not just knee-jerk reactions mm. of things because it that we have a little more space in some of that violent area which is great because yeah. it allows us a bigger footprint on what we can deal with and then I worked a lot with recruiting and staffing challenges and how you can redeploy resources based on needs of the organization. So I can take that experience, but 
I don't like to say just because I did something there that it will work here because it's very mm-hmm. different. The way that we handle things, it's just different. So yeah. you just take nuggets of wisdom from everything and then figure out how this can work in this community. Yeah. What are the big priorities here in this community? Well, you said gang-driven violence is big in Stockton. Um, there are gang issues here too, but obviously not to the same degree. What are the big law enforcement priorities for Reno, for people who, you know, their perception might just be, they think that downtown is dangerous. I don't know of anyone that's been mugged downtown. I have friends who go downtown. I I don't know how dangerous downtown is, but I think the perception of what the the real priorities are, the real crimes, yeah. part of that comes from like national media where you're seeing different types of crime than you see locally. But if you're not paying attention and you don't have good local news, you don't know whether that's happening in your own backyard too or not. So what are the, what are the big crime issues in Reno from the police chief's perspective? Well, you you actually hit on it exactly. So the biggest issues and the things that we get a lot, what drives a lot of the complaints and things that I get is the downtown. I would say that a lot of the complaints are related to homeless population, but I think that when we say that, we almost are doing a disservice to what's actually happening. The complaints are actually about crimes and nuisances and blight that are causing people to have an inconvenience in their daily lives, Mm. whether it's fights or acts of violence or somebody that's mentally ill that's yelling and screaming or somebody that's doing a destruction of property type offense that's causing the look and feel that makes people feel unsafe. And Mm. I agree with you. I'm very comfortable walking around downtown. (laughs) I feel safe down there. I, I enjoy it. But there's always room for growth and improvement. And we have done a lot of work on focusing our resources in that area to make sure that people that are coming to work and visiting here feel safe. Mm. For me, it's about looking at what is actually driving criminal acts. I don't think that you can even put homelessness and criminal acts in the same bucket because they're two totally different things. But sometimes people that are, that are you know, driving our crime rates are homeless. And so we have to understand and deal with that. But there's been a lot of outreach and work with the populations and getting people housed, constantly looking at the CARES campus and what their their occupancy is. And they're, they're very close to occupancy most days. There's mm-hmm. always a few beds here and there that are open, but there are a lot of people that are utilizing that resource. We've made great strides downtown. So I'm comfortable in the safety of being down there, but I do think that there is a perception and an idea, Mm -hmm. and and that's one of the things that we have to work on breaking. Mm -hmm. As far as um, crimes that are of the biggest concerns, obviously for me, my biggest priorities are any crimes of violence or gun violence. So we do have any sort of gang violence or anything that pops off like that or any other crimes of violence that impacts our communities. Traffic safety is another very big one. Mm -hmm. Watching our fatality rate to make sure that we are addressing intersections or streets that are issues and deploying resources as needed. And then looking at the property crimes, looking at some of the burglaries and thefts and things that have occurred, Those are the things that we really want to focus on to make sure that we are giving the idea that this community is safe. It is Mm -hmm. a very safe community. But you are right in the sense that something that is either getting national attention or statewide attention or even one or two incidents that get local attention can leave people feeling it's unsafe. So I'm constantly looking at the data, constantly looking at the crimes, constantly looking for crime trends. Um, we have a lot of detectives that work on that crime trend side of it. So when we start seeing auto thefts or something like that spiking and rising, how, what resources do we put in there to combat mm. it? And so it's a constant evolution of what's happening right now. Yeah. Yeah. It seems like part of it is also a messaging thing too, where it's you can do all of the police work that you do and you can address the actual crimes that are happening. But part of, I assume, your job as a police department is to 
explain what is going on yeah. and to communicate with the public. Can you talk a little bit about that challenge of, uh, you know, helping people see the reality of things as they are rather than their perception based on, again, media or stories they hear or whatever? Like, how do you uh, how do you show people what's actually going on? Yeah, you know, it's hard. It, it is. It's the biggest challenge. And it's always a fine line of what do you do? How much information do you put out? Mm -hmm. Because you want the public to know and you want to be transparent with things and you want everybody to understand it, but without risking or compromising investigations. Mm -hmm. And then also maintaining that confidentiality and the just kind of the properness of a victim's right side of it. Mm -hmm. So you don't want to over... Uh, put stuff out, but you also want to make sure that the public is aware of the good work that's happening. Mm -hmm. So one of the things we're really watching, and we've kind of started moving towards doing this more often, is as arrests happen for crimes that have generated any sort of interest, we'll end up putting out uh, media releases on people that were arrested and showing that this is um, an isolated incident. When we look at even just our homicides, the majority of the homicides, the people that are involved in them have a nexus to one another, mm -hmm. whether it's a domestic type of incident or their gang members doing a retaliation or it's something that um, forced two people to have contact with one another that's not random. Uh, we don't see a lot of random violence here. It's right. not something that's happening. And so we want to put out things that happen, like if there's an incident or a, a fight or an assault or something that happens at a bar, and we know that those people had some sort of connection, whether it was a fight or an argument based on whatever happened. We wanted to say that that's you're safe. Mm. The, these two people had a problem with one another, but it doesn't make the entire surrounding area safe. Just because this incident happened here, you are still in a safe space. These are people that chose to engage in a pattern of, of life, a lifestyle or a pattern of behavior that led to that incident. Right. So we have to be much better at messaging that and allowing the public to know that that's the case mm -hmm. um so it's it's interesting and it's always uh trying to watch what you put out and what you don't put out and when you put it out because sometimes yeah. we're in the middle of investigations and can't say anything mm -hmm. yeah and i imagine that part of the challenge too is the more you reassure people sometimes you probably get pushed back people saying uh they're how come they're not admitting all of the things that are wrong right, right? like the more you reassure people there are probably people who don't want to hear that either because it goes against their you know preconceived ideas and it's i don't think people do it maliciously i think that people do it in the sense that that's how they truly feel mm. and i and I want to make sure that people feel safe in their communities and their homes and going about their business. So we have to just make sure that we are upfront and honest about it. But I think when we stop putting that information out, that's when people are going to start to have distrust over the processes in the system and not understand that there's actually things happening. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the trust is a, a huge piece, I think, of the, the relationship between yeah. uh, our citizens and police. You, you mentioned the data-driven policing mm -hmm. a little bit and kind of how you're using this data to figure out where to prioritize resources and what to deal with. And I know that's a big priority of yours is this data-driven policing. Can you just explain what that is and kind of how you're trying to implement data in the work that you're doing here? Yeah. So I think that it, if we're not tracking what we're doing, both what the crimes that are happening and occurring, and then our response to that, either you know citations and contacts and engagement events, we don't really understand what either leads to increases in crime or decreases in crime. So we have to look at the total picture to see is what's happening on the outside and what we're doing on the inside to combat that. How are they working together? So the data is one important component of it. I get weekly updates on incidents that have happened, crime trends, anything that's going on. And then we put our resources into 
preventing those things from happening or solving those issues. So those two components together, when I compare what's happening plus what we're doing and are we seeing an increase or a decrease allows me to constantly tweak our response Mm -hmm. and our deployment. But that stuff only is one part of it. We always have to add in that human side of it. Because we could show data that says this is where the next crimes are going to happen or there's predictive analysis stuff that you can do or this where that is. But if we don't put the human component in it to say why is that happening Mm -hmm. there, we might not fully understand it. An example I can give of that is at one point in time I was seeing, and this is um, back in Stockton, I was seeing an increase of uh, violence in a specific area. Like there was one like intersection area that just kept having violent crimes happen. And I'm like, well, let's put people in that area. But when we actually looked at it, that was a thoroughfare. It was a reporting thing. It was how people were reporting stuff. It wasn't actually what was driving our violence. Mm. What was driving our violence was happening in other places. I had to switch my mindset to putting resources where one thing is happening to putting them where what's around the area where it's driving the violence. Right. So we have to look at it in a totality. It's not just oh, it says that this is a problem intersection. Well, what's happening there? And then how can we stop it on a bigger picture? And then I think the bigger part of that that we have to add into it that that sometimes gets forgotten in law enforcement, it's not just enforcement. It's not just going where something's happening and doing that enforcement. It's also that education piece. Mm -hmm. So for me, if we're doing DUI enforcement and I say, okay, we're going to have DUI enforcement this weekend. I like to tell the public we're going to do it because if the public chooses not to drink and drive, I've actually stopped the problem in a much better way than just arresting drunk drivers. Mm -hmm. So how many arrests I make is one side of it. But if I can stop the people from getting in their car and driving drunk by telling them we're going to do extra enforcement that day, and then when we get arrested and we highlight that, if I can change a pattern of behavior, that's actually what makes success. Mm -hmm. It's not just an arrest or a number of citations. It's how are we changing our messaging and how are people changing their behavior based on that? Yeah, I think that there's this suggestion sometimes that the metrics used to judge effective policing sometimes have the wrong incentives. It's like, how many tickets can you write and how much money can you bring in when is the goal to write tickets and make money or is the goal to prevent speeding? So what are the things that actually work to prevent these things rather than just, you know, um, checking as many boxes and um, doing as much paperwork as you possibly can do for the various crimes? Uh, so is that part of the the goal is to look further back in this process of crime prevention rather than just, I mean, law enforcement, as the term suggests, enforcement is the focus. Uh, policing suggests that it is policing behaviors, yeah. but crime prevention seems like it should fall under this umbrella. But we don't talk about policing as crime prevention. We, we talk don't. about it as law enforcement. Can you just talk a little bit more about that that approach to policing and kind of your experience or your thoughts on what crime prevention broadly should entail and and how much of the focus should be on things that maybe aren't aren't crimes yet, right? Like if we build housing, maybe that makes less crime. What are your approaches to the before things get to be a problem? Like how much of your energy goes to those kind of strategies? Yeah. So that that's the probably the best point, the best analogy of it. And when we Start looking at what our la- what our next deployment strategy is going to look like. And I talked about the location-based deployment strategies. Mm-hmm. It's engagement and enforcement because they're both, they go hand in hand. We could even add an education piece in there because the more information we give people to make different decisions, if it doesn't happen and the crime isn't happening, it allows my officers to do other things. Mm-hmm. They can do more proactive work. They can be more present in areas. They can be out at schools. They can do a ton of different things that allow for that free time. This doesn't make them answer a call for service because something has already happened. 
Um, we do something in law enforcement. It's called a SEPTED. It's crime prevention through environmental design. It's exactly what you're talking about here. It's how do we look at a location or a business that is having a propensity for crimes to happen there and say, hey, instead of just arresting people for doing that, why don't we do something that stops them from being there? And then we've actually solved the problem. Mm. And so I think sometimes we get one track mind or single sided on what are we doing in law enforcement when really there's it's multifaceted. And these are things that law enforcement does every day, mm. either knowingly or unknowingly is try to prevent the problems from happening. Um, and I, I don't disagree with you at all that the best measure of effective policing is not number of tickets, number of arrests. Those things do drive that information and shows us where we need to put our resources because if those things are happening, we know crimes are happening. Mm-hmm. But the better mechanism is how is what we're doing impacting crime and blight in our communities mm-hmm. And how can we better tweak that so that we are actually impacting the things that are important? Yeah, one of the criticisms that police and uh, similar organizations get sometimes about crime, especially around homelessness downtown, is that it just moving the problem to another area. And when you were talking about, oh, yeah, if you see a lot of incidents happening, the problem isn't, you know, go arrest everyone. It's stop the people from being there. How do you prevent that from being a case of, oh, you stop the people from being there and then they go somewhere else and you have to deal with them somewhere else. What's that missing component or their, that necessary component to make the difference between just moving crime around and actually preventing it from happening entirely, right? Yeah. Like, uh, how do you respond to kind of that that notion that a lot of law enforcement is just kind of pushing people to different parts of town? Yeah. It's true. It happens. And that, it's unfortunate. And I think that There is a place where that's when, if you've done everything that you can do, that's when that arrest side of it comes in, when we're doing extra enforcement, when we're actually um, arresting people so that they are not allowed to have that behavior anymore. Sometimes some people, that's the only thing that's going to resolve an issue. We can Mm -hmm. have a talk, we can have a lecture, we can have communication all day long, but at some point in time, their behavior is going to, it's going to force us to have to arrest them. And then It's working with the judicial system and the sheriff's office for the jail to say, hey, this person has created this problem that they need to stay in jail. We need an extra harsher penalties. Those things do happen also. Mm. We can't negate that those aren't part of our society because they are part of the society. But as far as the pushing people around and things like that, I think that's more where the collaborative efforts come from. Unfortunately, because police are here 24-7 and will pretty much go to any call that pops up we become the catch-all for fixing problems that Mm. aren't really police problems to fix, but it happens. So that's where we have to have a good support system with other community department, other community members and city departments to say, Hey, I've got this person. They are just being moved around. Can you please try and work with them for resources? Can they go get there any mental health help that they need? Do they need any medical care? Is there any housing that we can find? That totality approach, that entire services-driven mindset can help us get to a place where we can figure out what those next steps are. There are services that are lacking in this community, though, unfortunately, and I would say in all communities. There's uh, mental health help that people are not able to receive. Uh, There is very few places for us to help people get treatment when needed in the idea that that keeps them there and keeps them safe from themselves, where jail isn't necessarily that place. And there's housing resource needs that that we have to overcome because not every person that's homeless right now, providing them a home or a space to live in is the answer because some people just aren't 
mentally or are physically prepared to live in that type of environment. Mm. So there's a lot of transitional stuff that has to happen. And sometimes I think that's where services are lacking is really helping in that transition. Yeah. And part of the, my understanding, part of the way that you've address that is with special teams like there's the outreach the most i think it's called team and i know that sparks pd also has a program uh that are geared more towards dealing with these incidents in a way that is less traditional law enforcement right like i think you know not every solution needs a armed uniform police officer there to arrest somebody can you talk a little bit about what those programs look like and kind of how you partner with different either police or non-police uh organizations to service calls in a way that makes more sense for those calls? Yeah. So we we do an evaluation of, you know, what are the police needs? So part of that is, part honestly, part of the reason we do that is because I need to free up police resources to handle matters that they should be handling mm. and then apply the resources that are pertinent and important to that incident to the people that should be handling those incidents. So it's really about applying the proper response to something so that we can actually have a solution. So that's the goal, right? With mm-hmm. every one of these calls that we go on is to have a solution to get this all wrapped up and done and handled. And if if I only send police officers to it, it's not likely that that's actually going to happen. So we have mental health clinicians that can assist us with people that are having either mental health uh, breakdowns or trauma, and then people that need uh, suicide prevention or somebody other resources that they can help draw from. And then we work very closely with Clean and Safe, and there's a lot of resources through the city through housing, through veterans affairs, that they can help people get into different places also. So for us, it's usually that first touch of somebody is, hey, what do you need? And then how do we refer you to where it needs to be? And then if those systems fail, then we have to look at what that criminal behavior is. And so especially most of our homeless outreach starts with a team approach of nonprofits, community organizations, city resources, mental health, whatever it is that we can bring in to help with. And then at some point in time, if we can't get the behavior to change based on that, and there's a criminal aspect to it, we have to step in as law enforcement Mm -hmm. officers. Got it. Um, Let's talk a little bit about trust. Uh, We mentioned trust of the police is a big thing and transparency is a big part of that. The day that we're recording this, there was police body cam footage from an officer involved shooting that was just released. And I think that body cameras have been increasingly used by police departments, but you also hear cases of, oh, the the camera wasn't turned on for that. And that can be a frustrating thing of, oh, we have this tool of transparency that isn't always used in the way that we expect it to be used or that it should be used. Can you talk a little bit about body cameras? Were they used in Stockton or how long have they been used here in Reno? For people who have not been following, you know, police policy stuff, uh, as most people do not, uh, can you just talk a little bit about body cameras and the transparency element of people being able to see what is happening Mm -hmm. in police interactions? Yeah, absolutely. So I did have body cameras in Stockton. We actually were one of the first in that area in that region to get body cameras Um, I worked on starting that program and actually that was funded through a private donor. We had a, somebody that was willing to, to do a donation to start the body camera program before it was state mandated, before there was even funding for it or grants or anything else, somebody came forward and and offered uh, a private donation. So we were able to work through that. Mm. Um, And then I've had them ever since. And then they always take an evolution. Anything new is always hard. It's just hard. (laughs) People just takes a while. And so you did hear in the past a lot of times where people didn't have their body camera on or they weren't functioning or they weren't turning wearing them in, or we didn't have enough or whatever it was. 
A lot of those issues have been overcome by things like legislative mandates, more body cameras, better funding, things like that. So here we do have body cameras, all of our officers that are doing any sort of contact with the public in a uniformed capacity type of thing, they wear them. So most everybody has them. Anybody that's going out to do any sort of involvement with the community that could be like a calls for service or contacting a suspect or anything else. So we have a very low rate of officers not wearing their body camera. And we have policies that dictate that they must turn them on during encounters, that they must wear them, they must be functioning. And those policies allow for us to, if we do have somebody that's choosing to violate them, to, to do discipline, to do internal affairs investigations and things like that. Since I've been here, I have not um, had a use of force incident that's been brought to my attention, but the officers didn't have body cameras on, that they weren't wearing them, that somebody didn't have one in the group. So we've had um, multiple incidents where um, some of them don't turn on right away, but based on the fact that we have multiple officers that respond, we have different footage times of everything, we're able to capture it. So we have not had a problem with that that I've noticed since we've been here. Mm -hmm. Any sort of issues that we might have, obviously, would be dealt with our internal affairs department to say, hey, you have to wear your body camera. But I, I think the officers here are very supportive of the cameras. They like them. They show their side of it. It shows um, if somebody's making a false allegation to them, it allows us to say that this is not what happened or to say this recording that was posted online or somebody did from the outside, this is one angle, but this is the total picture. Mm -hmm. Because I think that a lot of times what I found in, in videos that are posted online of police departments nationwide, they're cut versions of them. They do show the incident, but they don't usually show the totality of the incident, sometimes because they're very too much so too long. Sometimes mm -hmm. it doesn't, you know, they look better in that cut form. There's a lot of different reasons why it happens. Mm -hmm. So for me, it gives me the opportunity to look at a full picture of what's happened and then take the entire circumstance into account when looking at, mm -hmm. did the officer do what was right or wrong and then start an investigation if not? One of my big things is that if we see something that's a violation of policy or procedure, I'm not waiting for a community member to call in and complain about it. We're starting those investigations right away. Mm -hmm. So if the supervisors see something that's a violation, we figure out what that's going to look like. A lot of times they're training issues. You did something wrong. This is how you do it better. We look at history. Did you know? Is this a pattern of behavior you have, or is this a one-time thing that happened? Mm. And how do we're going to handle it? Um, but those investigations are um, ongoing as we move through. We're not waiting for community members to call in and make us aware. Yeah, that's good to hear. I think that one of the the perceptions is that very often police seem to be uh, above the law. Sometimes that there will be officer-involved shootings, and then an officer is on leave with pay for a long time. So like, oh, that sounds like a paid vacation. Can you talk a little bit more about accountability for officers, not necessarily yeah. just for officer-involved shootings, but just in general, it sounds like you have a are taking actions against policy violations. But can you just talk more broadly about police accountability mm -hmm. and why that's a priority and how to build trust with people and let them know that, you know, the police are not above the law themselves? I think a lot of that lack of confidence or lack of faith that there is things happening in the department to create that accountability is the fact that sometimes our hands are very tied in what we can release publicly. Mm -hmm. There's state law that allows us only to release certain things. So for example, if there's an investigation into an officer, there's very limited information I can legally release about that information. So it leaves this idea in the public sometimes that, well, they, did, they didn't do anything. And that's not always the case, but what I can actually give the public is not always the full story, which is hard for us. And it's, and it's the law, we're bound by it, regardless mm -hmm. of what I want to say. 
I get put in this place where I can only say certain things and I have to watch how I even present some information because of the way the law dictates that we can't do that. But I think overall that where that lack of transparency or the lack of trust comes from is a lack of openness in our response to things. Policing a long time ago, you know, back when I started and, and I mean, not in the not so distant past, things would happen and we would not provide any information. We would not even tell people what was happening. And there was a time when, when we, that things maybe weren't investigated the way that they should have been. I think we've really adapted as a culture and internally and externally with the expectations that are placed upon police to say, this is how we handle investigations. This is our policies on it. This is what we will do. And then hold people accountable. And people think discipline and accountability, they're bad words. They're not. Everybody does something wrong. I mean, it, it it's inherent that you're going to do something wrong in yeah. your day-to-day job. And and I go, hey, don't do that again because it didn't work out that way. And this is the policy. I need you to not do that again. That's discipline. I mean, that truly is at the at its at its purest form. That's us holding people accountable for their actions. Now, sometimes the actions are at a different level, and we have to start an internal affairs investigation. And then there is a discipline process that comes with it, and people can receive a range of discipline based on that. I think that the biggest drawback is that we are sometimes I'm unable to put forward the information that I want to put forward always because. It, of these laws and things that, that curtail that. And I understand the reason for officers' rights and safety and things like that, but sometimes it can lead to that. So my job then is to make sure that I'm as transparent as I possibly can with the public. Things like releasing body-worn camera footage when it's necessary, providing information um, when I can. If somebody calls with a complaint or sends me an email of a complaint to ensure I get back to them to say how that was resolved. And then really the other part of that is is that open line of communication, really that explanation. When you see something on TV or a video, me saying, okay, you saw that, but let me give you uh, some more information about that incident. Yeah. Or this is where we're at with that and this is how I believe and in, in this next steps are. So I think it's up to, it's incumbent upon me as the chief, it's incumbent upon other city officials, it's incumbent upon other police departments to really put forward as much information we can in a timely manner for that transparency piece. Yeah. And then they'd be willing to have the hard conversations. If we screw up and something goes wrong and an officer does something they shouldn't have done, sometimes that's a hard conversation, but have it. Mm-hmm. And then talk about how we're fixing that problem, what our policy is, any adjustments that we've made to policy and things like that. Yeah. Tell me about this new public safety center that's on the way up. I, I know, know that you've you've come into this position in the middle of the construction of it and it's on its way. We're currently recording in the current police station, which I parked a couple blocks away because it it's, it's not a, <laughs> not a very accessible building, I would say. Can you just talk a little bit about the public safety center, what it's going to look like, what the process is, uh, what the need for it is, like what service or what purpose it's going to serve in the community when it's done? Uh, what's the what's the status on that thing? So we are we are moving right ahead. We're looking at moving in over the summer. Even just the short time that I've been here, such progress has been made. I'm super excited about it. You have identified the number one reason why I'm so excited to move in there is parking, twofold parking. One, I, we can't get visitors there. It is so hard to schedule meetings, to have community events, to actually integrate our community with the police in our own space, because there's there's really no way to do that. If you have more than two or three people coming, there is not going to be parking for them. Mm-hmm. So it's really hard to do that. But there, beautiful new parking lot, lots of stalls. You will have a parking space. Don't worry about it. It's going to be great. <laughs> 
But then also the parking and the safety of, of my employees that work here. So right now they park all over. They have to walk across multiple streets to get in. Sometimes we work all hours. Um, and so for me, having everybody contained in one space with the parking that works for them is a really big priority. Also, then we're going to be able to work in a better team function because layouts of different units, they're all going to be together. They have space near each other. We're not on three floors trying to find one another and with elevators that sometimes work, sometimes don't. Mm -hmm. And uh, and then just having that space that these officers deserve. It's a new, beautiful space. They're going to love it. And I'm just so excited. And then the ability to integrate community with there. Mm -hmm. So it's a work in progress, but it's going. And um, I'm very impressed with all the progress that's been made on it. It's been a, it's a, it's a wonderful experience. Okay. Are there additional services planned to be kind of integrated with it too? Or is it just going to be for the police headquarters? Are there going to be additional services or things? How is it more expansive than like your current office as far as services and things that you provide? Or is it just more space? So it's both. So with the more space comes the ability to provide better services within the facility. So things like if you come in to report a crime, and maybe it's sensitive in nature, right now, you came in through the lobby, I'm assuming. And Mm -hmm. so you saw that that little space, we don't really have a place to get somebody into a quiet place to talk about something that happened to them. And people forget that most of the contacts police have with community members are during a very bad time or a hard time in their life. Something has happened to them to call the police. I, you know, jokingly say nobody ever says, Hey, my kids are getting along great. My wife and I were doing good. We just made an amazing dinner and you guys want to stop in and see us. That's not the calls that we get. Um, I'll jokingly say maybe that's a fire department right. that gets those calls and they get it. I'm joking. I'm teasing them. That's, you know, it has to be that ongoing little battle. Mm-hmm. But we see people when they're having a tragedy in their life of some sort, whether they can control it or not control it, it's still a stressful time. When they come to us to report an incident, the the more empathy and the more space that we can give them to to allow them to tell us what happened, the better it, the res- resolution is going to be for both of us. So the new building has private rooms that we can have conversations with family family rooms, so people can sit there in a in a much more comfortable environment, a community space where we can host meetings and host people. There'll be a, a way to drop off firearms that are unwanted. So right now we don't have that ability here. We don't really have the way to manage that. A safe exchange spot. So whether you have to do a child custody exchange or maybe you're buying somebody from something online, you can come do it in the parking lot where it'll be recorded and we have a safe mm-hmm. space for you to do those things. And then adding on a lot of wellness stuff for our officers. So gym space so that they can work out, which is a huge part of their mental health and well-being some areas for breaks where they can decompress and get away from the things that they're dealing with in their lives, private rooms to have lunch in where it's quiet, an outdoor space to get some fresh air, whatever it is that's needed, adding on to that mental health of those officers, that's all going to help our community mm-hmm. in the long run. Cool. Um, you mentioned staffing earlier. Uh, obviously, this is an expensive building. Police departments take up a big bu- big part of any city's they budget. Do. Can you talk a little bit about the staffing level? You mentioned that it's lower than it has been historically. What's the right level of police staffing for a city like Reno? How does the the money work as far as are, do you have the budget that you need? Or do you get a lot of pushback on how much police departments spend? I imagine that you do. What's that like right now as far as the the finances and staffing of the department? Yeah, I don't know if I get pushback on how much it is, but it's definitely a topic of conversation. Mm-hmm. It gets brought up on occasion. Um, it is. And, and public safety, you know, notoriously throughout, um, if you look at any municipality, public safety, police and fire are going to make up the largest majority of the general fund budget. And it's 
pretty much commonplace. And, and there's a lot of things that factor into that. The cost of keeping public safety employed is it's high. And, and you look at things like work comp claims, it's a dangerous position. And, and when injuries happen, they're usually at a level that are above a, a paper cut or a mild sprain. They're usually things that are going to require significant resources to combat and to get people back to working. So there's a lot of different things that factor into that, the cost of equipment, the cost of the police cars, there's just a lot. And then personnel cost obviously mm -hmm. um, factor in also. There is a desire by city leaders, by our electeds to grow our police department and continue to grow the police department. They recognize that our optimum number is higher than what it is now. We're working on a long range staffing model and what that would look like. It's important for me to recognize that it's not just the sworn staff that has to grow as we grow a police department. We also have to grow a professional staff, the behind the scenes people, the people that run records, evidence, property, all those things that give us the support that we need. We have to grow those as our sworn numbers grow also. Mm. It's a proportionate growth model that we look at and there is room for added people in investigations to do follow up on crimes that maybe aren't getting followed up on now due to the resources that we have. They're very supportive of it. To grow a police department, uh, recruitment is hard right now in police, and, and it's nationwide that it's challenging. For me, it's keeping the growth at a level that we can achieve in an annual basis. So I want to ask for a certain number of people that I can fill during that annual basis, where I can keep from attrition and then new hires and I can obtain it. It doesn't do any good to give me 60 people next week because I'm not going to find 60 police officers mm. next week. Unfortunately, I would love to, but it's not the way that it works. So for me, it's creating a sustainable path of growth that the city can support, that our community can support, and that we can hire and train and have on the streets in a reasonable manner. So there's growth needed, but they're very supportive of it. Yeah. What are the recruitment challenges? Why is it uh, hard to hire cops? It, well, it's hard. I think it's hard to hire everybody right now, not just police. I think True. everybody's having a little bit of a uh, hiring issue. Every business person I talk to right now says, yeah, I'm having a hard time keeping people and getting people in employed. The challenges have been seen since probably we've seen a decrease in these since 2020 or so different incidents and negative perceptions of police have created to a harder transition from a, a non-law enforcement career to a law enforcement career. It's not something that people are actively seeking as much. So our numbers for our applicants have decreased. We've done a really good job as of late to increase those numbers, to expand our recruiting uh, tactics that we have, and to really get people into this job and profession. And to highlight that it's not just, you know, the things you see on TV that police do, there's a lot of things that they can. So we struggle with recruiting just like everybody else is, but they've done a really good job and we've done a really good job of prioritizing this. And so my recruiters have done amazing social media presence, putting information out there, a lot of work with HR and civil service to get testing processes happening when people can do it. And we've been very successful. So I'm hoping that this is a successful recruiting year mm -hmm. and then we can just have more of those. I have a couple more broad questions about policing, not Reno specific, okay. but just in general too. A lot of the ideas around police, we talked a little bit about this and especially like you said, since 2020, kind of public perception of policing, they come from national news and like uh, very high profile incidents and high crime kind of cities. And you've been in law enforcement for a, a long time. Can you talk a little bit about that trend in kind of reporting on police and public perceptions of police? How is that helpful or hurtful to you as a police chief 
to have really big narratives that you don't have any real control over, right? You can't control what's on the national news and on cable news and what's the, you know, uh, the discourse of the day around policing. But there's also much more, you know, there's cell phone cameras, there's body cameras, there's much more visibility into police interactions. Can you just talk a little bit about that perception element of your job of having to deal with a perception of police that I imagine is pretty largely out of your control in recent years. Yeah, it, uh, the perception of police and how the the national narrative and different social media and things like that have portrayed police and even movies and, and different things like that have really created this lack of trust between communities and police. And the problem is there's been incidents in our past and in our history that people know and remember that the police did not do a stellar job. They did not do what the public expected of them. And they did not do things that I as a police chief would ever support. But conveying that is hard and it, and it creates some challenges. And I think that the best way to combat that is really opening yourself up to have that hard conversation and not to say that doesn't happen in my organization or I my police officers don't do that. Because the history of policing is fraught with issues, especially with people of color that have created a negative perception of law enforcement. And it's not so far in the history of people, their memories are still there that these things happened. If you look at, you know, things that happened in the 50s and 60s, we have people that were still alive, them were a part of this and have passed down that historical knowledge to their children. And there's things that have happened in our community that have created distrust. So we have to acknowledge that they're there. It doesn't matter whether I was there that day or not, I have to acknowledge that law enforcement as a whole does have a responsibility for the narrative that has been created. Mm -hmm. Now, is that narrative accurate and reflective of our organizations and our, our goals and our morals and values and how we come to work every day? Absolutely not. But that's the part that I can control. I can control what I say about what my the work my officers are doing, the hard work that they're doing, and then saying that is not in our policies. It's not in our procedures. We will not tolerate that type of behavior. And making sure that my officers are aware that we're supportive of them and their ongoing hard work and dedication to our community but that we do have reasonable expectations of their level of behavior and performance. And we have to be very honest with that with the community. Mm -hmm. So it's about that accountability and holding people accountable, but we can't shy away from the fact that people are going to think and feel these things. And if we don't talk about it and we don't talk about Mm -hmm. race or gender bias that happen, then we're ignoring a true thing that is occurring in our community's mindset, perception or reality. It's still there. We have to be willing to have those conversations, Mm -hmm. but uh, I don't like social media things spreading like wildfire because then I'm answering questions that I'm like, I don't know, we had nothing right. to do with that, but here I am talking about it. But what I can talk about is what the level of expectation is, the level of performance, making sure that that my staff knows what that expectation is, and then really opening myself up to say, we have to be honest with our community members, transparent, and when they have displeasure over something, we have to have those conversations no matter how difficult they are. Mm-hmm. We haven't talked a lot about community policing, but I know that that is a big priority of yours and the idea of uh, people knowing the police officers in their neighborhood and that kind of closer integration between the police and everyone else. Can you talk a little bit about community policing and, and just what that is? So for me, community policing is really understanding how does a community need to be policed? What does a community need to feel safe with the police in their community? There's different ideas of how people want the police to show up. 
There's communities that when the police drive through, they're happy, they're waving, and they're excited that the police are there. There's other communities when the police drive through, it creates fear and an uncomfortable nature. And they don't feel safe with the police officers there. Some people don't feel safe because they feel if they call the police and the police have an, an engagement with a person that they're dealing with, that it's going to end in violence that they don't want to see. They're hesitant to call the police on certain incidents. Mm -hmm. And so we have to be cognizant as police officers and know what a community needs from us. We can't not police a community. We have to police all communities. We have to be present and available and engage with all communities. But how we show up is different depending on their needs. So for me, the community policing aspect of it is getting to know the members there, what their expectations are and what the problems that they're seeing include. So you might have one group of people that says people that hang out in our parks are dangerous. They're violent. They graffiti. They shoot guns off. I want anytime the police come into my neighborhood and there's a park there, I would like them to make contact with the people in that park because they're up to no good. They're a problem. And that's what their goal is. There's other people that think that their parks are perfectly safe and the police shouldn't take that type of approach in their park. It doesn't mean that we're going to allow criminal behavior to happen there, but we have to understand what the needs are of the community to know how we show up for mm -hmm. them. So that's the biggest part for me of the community policing and the part that I think misses the most is I can only teach community policing at an expectation level. I need the police to show up and find out what that community actually needs to feel safe. Mm -hmm. And then how do we break down barriers that are creating issues where we can't have that communication? So it's a lot it's a lot bigger. It's not just being present, getting to know the officers that are there. It's creating a mindset change so we actually understand the needs that are happening there. Yeah. You mentioned shaping environments to prevent crime too. And the, part of the reason we have crime is we have environments that allow and foster crime. And uh, if we built things in a different way and if we developed our cities in a different way, that would help them Absolutely. be cleaner and safer. Uh, I am much more interested in kind of how we design spaces than how we police them because I tend to agree that if we build places that have natural, um, I know the word surveillance has a kind of a negative connotation, but if you have natural surveillance from people who are just present in a community, then you don't need as much of a police presence because the people are already watching the street, that kind of thing. Can you talk a little bit about how either our city or cities in general can be built to be naturally safer. And again, I don't want to put the police completely out of a job because the cities are so safe that we don't Thank need you. them. <laughs> but I, in a perfect world, I'd like to envision that um, police are responding more to calls when they are needed rather than having them be the default surveillance mechanism in a community. Mm -hmm. So can you just talk a little bit about how cities are built and changes that can be made either to create more natural surveillance or to create safer spaces, whether that's, maybe it's lighting, right? Maybe it's right. street lights. Can you talk a little bit about environmental design and how that plays into the work you're trying to do or maybe butts heads with the work that you're trying to do? Yeah. So I think what you're describing is how spaces are activated for their intended purpose and not for criminal activity. Hmm. So when you look at a park for say, if nobody goes to that park and it's maybe in a, in a community that has a higher rate of crime or people that um, might use a park for more nefarious reasons and nobody goes to that park, you're not going to see legitimate uses of that park. You're going to only see criminal uses of a park. So when you build a space, it's important to know what is that community going to utilize that space for and who and how are they going to be present there? So if you have an apartment complex where everybody works from home 
and they're going to be there all day long. You're going to see people in, out, bustling around, in and out, walking through the dog park, walking here, walking there. You're going to see less people there that are using it for criminal activity. Mm-hmm. If you have a community where people drive in, hit their, their remote control, get into their garage, close their doors, and they have no idea what happens on the outside, it allows for those types of things to breed because nobody's activating that space in mm-hmm. a proper manner. So when communities are built, I think that it goes back to finding out what are the needs are of that space. How is it going to be utilized and how what do they need to make it successful? And you can use that analogy in liquor stores and grocery stores. If you don't have spaces that people need there, then you're not going to have the proper activation, which is going to allow for either a lack of activation or people that have criminal behavior coming in. And so we have to, I think, really work better on not what we envision a space to look like, but what does that community envision that space to look like and the need that they have Mm. to utilize it? It's interesting because sometimes people have an idea that they want to see a grocery store, you know, in in a certain area. But if they don't put a grocery store there, they put a market in that is more about convenience foods and alcohol related things. You're not going to see people utilizing that as a grocery store. You're going to see them utilizing it as a pop in, pop out convenience store. So I think that utilization is the biggest part of how do you activate a space to prevent crime from happening there. Mm -hmm. And about the natural surveillance if people see something happening in their neighborhood that, that makes them uncomfortable or they don't like, they have to call and report it. I do have a problem with underreporting here where people will know that some place is a, an issue, but they don't want to be the one that calls and reports. And mm-hmm. it's a common phenomenon. It's not just here. Um, there's ways to do it and remain anonymous. And there's ways that you can do it through online reporting or whatever. But if I don't know that a neighborhood or a location is a problem to the community there, I have no way to deploy resources mm-hmm. there because it's not in my radar. I don't know until it's an emergency. And then everybody's like, this place has been a problem for years. And I was like, well, I had no idea. How yeah. do I know that if nobody calls and reports it? Cause that's really my only mechanism for I, the human side of it. They see it, but also that, that reporting mechanism really does help. Yeah. I mean, I think that the trust falls into that as well too. Or I Absolutely. think probably part of the reason that people don't call and report an area that might have crime going on is because at least for me, I don't know what's going to happen. And the last thing that I would want to do is call a police officer and then there's an officer involved shooting or an incident. Like, I think people don't want the responsibility, not legal responsibility, but just like moral responsibility of leading to an incident that's worse than it would have been otherwise. So people will overlook a petty crime to avoid escalating because there's the perceived risk that calling the cops is an escalation. Yes. So uh, I don't know how to deal with with that one. It's seems like an, an understandable hesitation that some people might have considering what they've seen in the past, right? And I don't and I don't discount any of that. I think that where it starts to become an issue is is some problem manifests itself to the point that it's not being resolved, mm-hmm. and we could have handled it in a lower level here. But now it's up to a different place because we've not resolved the issue when it happened initially. And I, I will say, you know, the the violent encounters with police are a very, very minimal part of the interactions. Generally, less than 1% of the interactions are do result in a violent encounter with police. The police contact uh, so many people every day and have so many interactions that end in a very positive way. And they never, ever really get highlighted because we don't focus on those. We focus mm-hmm. on the one or two interactions that happen in a negative manner. I absolutely understand the hesitancy, and I think that the trust does build into that. And I also think there's a a group of people that think that this is a petty thing. Why do I need to bother with that in the police? But again, it's it's I I would never force anybody to call and report something, but I do want people to feel comfortable doing that. Mm -hmm. 
you ran for Congress once upon a time. And I'm curious of your experience of how do we make change both on the, the political side? Obviously, you're still in law enforcement. You're yeah. a police chief now. But a lot of people try to make change in their community, in their environment through politics, maybe not at the congressional level, but they're running for local office. We have our local electeds. Can you talk a little bit about that different approach of the political policy side versus the law enforcement, I would call it boots on the ground side. What appealed to you about running for an elected office? And uh, are you glad you didn't win? Are you happy to still be with the police? Can you just talk a little bit about that experience of trying or looking towards a different approach to the things you were trying to do? It was a great experience. I don't regret any part of that. It was just it was a really, really good experience. It was, it was a long time ago. It feels like a really long time ago <laughs> in 2016. So the world was a different place then. It really was. Politics were different then. Everything mm-hmm. changes and morphs. Yes, I'm, I'm not because of that, but for a host of other reasons, I'm very happy with where I'm at right now. I'm a firm believer that things happen for a reason. It either works out or it doesn't. And mm-hmm. that's what your next steps in life are is based on that. So that's kind of my thought on most things that I've done. Mm-hmm. But I think the nexus is, is that that there's a way for every person in our community to be involved in our community. What does that look like for each of us individually? I think it depends on timing and need and where you're at in your life, but we all need to take some ownership and responsibility. I think that electeds are, they're one of the most important things that we have in our communities is our electeds are the ones that hold the policies and the decisions from the people that are around them. And I think it's really important to see members of our community want to be involved in that process in one way or another. It's great to see laws and policies changed based on community needs. And I think that there's some lacking in some of our It's like the disconnect of our legislatures and our elected bodies where sometimes you have a need in our community and there's a law that happens, but they don't always Mm. meet. And sometimes there's a a separation between the two. And that I think is one of the things that is that probably drew me to this the most is that separation between laws and need. And sometimes by the time they get up to law there, some of the need has gone away. Mm-hmm. And so I, that would be my encouragement to people when they're voting or when they're, you know, looking, look for what you want, what you believe in. And then does this match the need in our community? And are they, they mm-hmm. one and the same? Cause I think that that's sometimes where the disconnect comes from. Yeah. Uh, my show is not highly political, but you came from California to Nevada and we have somewhat different state politics, I think, in those two states. Uh, Definitely Nevada's got this kind of pretty strong libertarian bent. I think we're very uh, a gun-friendly state where California has a lot of gun controls. You mentioned gun violence as a big priority. I don't really have a specific question here, but just as far as coming from a California police department to a Nevada police department, have you seen uh, the difference between these two states play into the way that you're able to do your job or the differences in the police departments or anything like that? What's it like coming from California to Nevada? It's it's funny that you ask that because sometimes I think that the laws here have some additional restrictions that I'm not used to. And then sometimes I think that the laws there had too many restrictions. So there's no perfect world for it. They're very similar communities. So Central Valley, California is similar in um, kind of ideology or political nature as here. It's mm. not so far different that it's um, makes me wonder or makes me question. It's it's very similar because the Central Valley is 
it just kind of has a lot of similarities gotcha. in that. Um, there are laws, differences in the way we can police, laws that we can enforce, the way that the laws are laid out, and then some of the things that um, restrict or tie our hands here. But overall, the laws here still allow for the way that we need to enforce them. There's still mechanisms in place and ways that we can do that while still protecting the rights of our community members from over-policing or from over-victimization. And I think that those laws have to always be looked at to make sure that they're in balance. You brought up gun laws and things like that. For me, there's a lot of gun laws out there on the books. And I think that it just, a lot of it has to do with how they're enforced and how we're mindful of who has what guns. And a bigger part of a lot of the gun laws for me go back to the mental health side of it. And my concerns that people are hesitant to get involved with somebody that they know has a gun or is making threats or feels like maybe something's off in what they do. And and I just want people to know that if they're concerned about somebody's behavior, that they should obviously report it because that's where I think that our mass shootings and our active violence, the stopping of those is going to come from better mental health care. And then people in people's lives that are willing to say this isn't proper behavior and, and step up when they see something wrong. It's interesting. There's a lot more guns here um, than in California. They're very much more normalized, but the gun violence is less. So I don't really know what the nexus is to that. I don't have an answer for it. Yeah. Um, what did we miss? What else do you want people to know about your work here in Reno or your career or anything that we didn't cover? I just, you know, kind of want to reiterate that I'm, I've been very happy here. The community has been very supportive. The department's been very supportive. I learn a lot every single day, and that's the ongoing pressures I think that we all have. It's hard. It's it's hard work. The men and women in this department do a phenomenal job, and it's just about figuring out how we can continue to better improve how we're interacting with our communities and what we're doing that's working and what's not and making those changes as necessary. Excellent. And well, the last question I always ask is how can people learn more or get involved? If people enjoyed this conversation, they want to know what else is going on with RPD, if they want to apply for a job, if they have criticisms and they want to argue with you, how can people stay in touch, communicate, be involved, uh, be active citizens when it comes to dealing with the police? Absolutely. I think that watching for um, any information releases we do through our social media is probably one of the easiest ways. There's always Ask RPD if you have a question or a concern or you you want some further information about it. And then don't hesitate to stop and talk to us. So if you see an officer out there and they're you know, lunch or coffee, they're going to hate me for saying that. <laughs> um, but it's okay. Or, you know, ask and say, just say hi and get to know people that, that are working around you and near you. Because that's probably the biggest disconnect is how do we just have a, a, a good conversation and talk when things are happening. And then remember, um, you know, if there's ever a concern or an issue or you need to report a crime, there's plenty of ways to do that. The website's probably the best. And then any ways that you want to reach out, we're always willing to help out with anything. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank it was you. great to sit down and chat with you and learn about what's going on in the department. And I really appreciate you taking the time. Of course. Thank you. Listeners, thank you so much for tuning in to this week's episode of Renoites. And special thanks to my guest, Chief Catherine Nance of the Reno Police Department. Really appreciated the opportunity to sit down with the chief and learn about what's going on at RPD. If you found value in this episode, please do me a favor and help spread the word. One of the best things you can do to support this show besides signing up on Patreon, is just letting people know about it. There are tens of thousands of daily podcast listeners in Reno, and I meet people all the time who have no idea that we have a local interview show like mine. So let them know. The best way to do that is share posts on social media. If you see a story post on Instagram or Facebook, hit the share button and say, hey friends, check out this episode of the Renoites podcast. It's really great. 
that helps reach people that I would not reach otherwise. And I'm very grateful every time it happens. So thank you so much for letting people know about the show. That's all I've got for you this week. See you next time.